the book of James, the second chapter beginning in the very first verse. James 2.1 says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, do not... God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he becomes guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Would you pray with me? Good and gracious Father, oh Lord, I just know that I'm not worthy to speak your name, but how thankful I am that you have made a way through Jesus that there's not one of us here who are worthy of the incredible gift that you have given us, and yet we are so thankful that you have called us your children and called us into the ministry of the plan for your world. Bring to our minds even this moment, Lord Jesus, those things, the failures, the sins that we have committed so that we might ask for your forgiveness, repent of our sins, and so that there would be no barriers between us And so we ask audaciously, come, Lord Jesus, let us worship you and praise you, not only with great thoughts, great words, great songs and anthems, but also with great humility of action, strength of character in our words and our deeds. Holy Spirit, come and open your words to our life today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was reading this week about what is known as a caste system, and that's something that's practiced in India. You see, in India, even to this day, there's a caste system that kind of divides everybody into four different levels, or what they call varnas. And at the top of them is the Brahmins, and these are the teachers and the scholars and the priests. They're called kishatriyas. I practiced that many times this week. Kish Atrias. And, and they're the kings and the warriors. And then the, there's the Vaishyas. And they're the agriculturists and the traders. And, and then Shudras. They're the service betri- uh, providers and the artisans. And as you are born into one of these four groups, your fate, your future, your life is pretty much fixed at that point. 
And so even if you felt like you had a, a gift to teach, you couldn't be a teacher if you were a shudras, or you couldn't be an artist if you were a vaishras, and, and, and you certainly couldn't marry outside of your caste, even if you did happen to fall in love with someone that was outside of your caste. You see, and, and 73% of the 1.3 billion people that live in India, 73% still practice that today. Now, there's one other group that's not even really called a group or a caste, and they're called the untouchables. And, and, and just because you were born an untouchable, you can't work in any of the other professions that I've mentioned. You won't ever receive any formal education. You can't marry outside of your own group, and you're pretty much doomed to live kind of on the outskirts of society, on the fringes, that you live off the, the garbage and the rejects of the rest of the world. And even if they're on the other side of the planet, to think about that, I think there's something that just tears at our souls. There's something that I just find absolutely wrong, and I think you find it hateful, and our hearts yearn to do something. Because after all, what? We're Americans, Right? And in America, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we know in our hearts deep down that the, a caste system is wrong to the very core because, after all, we're Americans. But even more... Because we are Christians. And James says to us today, my brethren, do not hold your faith in glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. James says there is no caste system in the family of faith. And yet how easy it is for us to put up barriers and divisions within our body. How easy it is to show partiality and favoritism. It almost seems to me like there's an instinctual or a, just a natural desire to divide, to categorize, to group ourselves into outsiders and insiders, into somebodies and into nobodies. If you remember, as we began our study in the book of James, we, we began with James in the first chapter, and he's talking about the, that we should be people of integrity. And in my mind, integrity means that what we say we believe and the way that we act, they're in a line. They're in a line, and there's, it's like we don't need a chiropractic adjustment because what we say and what we are straight in line. And so in chapter 2, he begins to give us examples about how what we say we believe and our actions may be out of kilter, that we may be out of line. And he begins by saying favoritism and partiality can have no part in the body of Christ. It should not be so. We should not build artificial walls between God's people. And in this case, he says, as an example, here's a rich man and a poor man. And that rich man comes down the aisle, and we've got a great first impressions team, and someone just goes up to him, and they recognize him as a somebody in this world. And they say, listen, here, let me just take you up to the front pew. Because after all, you'll be able to see the choir. You'll be able to hear them so beautifully. This is a place of honor right down here where you're sitting, Kimberly. And they just send them right up here. You'll be able to, hey, listen, 
I got a better idea. Instead of the first pew, come up here and sit in this chair. You'll be able to see everything, and you'll also be able to be seen by everybody. A second man comes in just a few minutes after. Road closer a little bit ragged. Might smell a little bit off. And old may it never be, but this is the example James says. James says, why don't you go ahead and I'll tell you what, there's some great seats up in the balcony. And there's no, you know, there's no, uh, you don't have to compete with anybody else. You can just, well, I'll tell you what, we just got that cleaned up there. Why don't you just stay here in the foyer, and if you'd like to kind of kneel down by the footstool over here. I even have a hard time just saying those words because they're hurtful and hateful. You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. And James says, you know what? That makes absolutely no sense because aren't those rich folks the very ones that make your life miserable? It's not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court. What sense does it make? And then he says something kind of, if you think about it, it just makes perfect sense. He says, he says hasn't God chosen the poor of the world? He says in verse 5, listen, my beloved, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised? And what he's saying is this, if you choose on the wrong side, if you choose those rich folks over the poor folks of the world, you're standing on the wrong side. You're not standing with your heavenly Father. And shouldn't we choose the nobodies of the world? Shouldn't we choose the nobodies? Listen, if you drifted off, come on back just for a second. Shouldn't we choose the nobodies of the world because every one of us was a nobody until Jesus Christ, amen? I remember a time in my life when I had just started seminary. And listen, I'm not a mystical person, but I do tell you, I think it happens to most of us, that there's times in our life when God speaks to us in a more direct and real way. And one night, as I was just starting seminary, I went to bed, and God woke me up at about 2 o'clock in the morning. It was one of those unique moments, and I knew it was time to get up. I knew that he had something to say to me. I went downstairs. We lived in Concord at the time. Went downstairs, and I got down on my knees and began to pray. Just had started seminary. And I pray as I often do, Lord, if you have something to speak, your servant is here to listen. And the Spirit spoke to me, and he said something completely unexpected. He said, nothing that you will ever do outside of Jesus Christ will have any eternal value. I'm going to say it again. Nothing you ever do outside of Jesus Christ will have any eternal value. And I can't tell you, maybe it was the message, maybe it was the spirit, but I felt so incredibly pierced at that moment. I can't communicate to you the brokenness I felt, but I can tell you that I just sat on the floor and I cried. Nothing you ever do outside of Jesus Christ will have any eternal value. And a few moments after that soaked in, the second part of the message came. I heard the Holy Spirit say, but listen, everything that you do in Jesus Christ will have eternal value. Everything you do will have eternal value across the ripples of time if you do it in my name and for my sake. 
And I can't tell you the, 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 the transition from feeling so broken to feeling such joy. You see, because I remember that I was a nobody before Jesus Christ. But in that moment, he told me that I was going to be a somebody for his sake, that I was going to have meaning in for my life. Because in Jesus Christ, we are saved, amen? In Jesus Christ, we are redeemed. He's given you a purpose. There's millions and billions of people out there that are wandering aimlessly, that they have no purpose, no vision. They're just bouncing off each other like pinballs. But you have purpose in Jesus Christ. And he made you with somebody. Before him, we were nobodies. But now he's giving us meaning and purpose. And here's my point. None of those things that we are are given to us by the wealthy or the powerful of the world. So why in the world, says James, would we side with them over the poor of the world? Because we were all nobodies before Jesus Christ made me a somebody. Man, we are crazy in our culture. We are crazy. I'm getting to the point in my life where, you know, somebody famous will come on TV. I'll look at Sandy and say, who's that? She said, I don't know. I don't know either. And then they'll come on and say, you know, what they did. We say, well, they're somebodies. Why are they somebodies? Well, you know, you know, did they build something? Have they served a lot of people? Have they cured a great disease? Why are they somebodies? Have you heard this? No, they're social influencers. What's that? Well, people pay them to wear clothes and to comment on culture and their social info, and so people just give them money. Why would, why would we treat them differently? Why would we chase after them? Why would we give them honor over others? And who are we to choose who is more deserving of God's grace one over another? The, do, the, the great thing about the book of James, anyone who's read it, is you don't need to be a theologian to understand it, right? James is so plain spoken. And so really, to me, the question of the day is this. We need to bring it down. James says, hold this up as a mirror to yourselves. Do we as a church practice partiality? Hard question. And I think the answer is that no, we don't in the obvious way that James might describe. But there are other divisions that can kind of more subtly creep into a body and that we must always be on guard against. For instance, we could show favoritism with those who have been longtime members over those that are recently members of the church. And yet, are we not all the same in Christ? We could show partiality over skin color or over gender. We could show favoritism with uh, one spiritual gift over another spiritual gift. Kimberly, I was thinking about you this morning. I was watching you over here playing, and I was just thinking, oh, aren't we, aren't we thankful for Kimberly and all our musicians? Amen? I tell you what, she's got a gift. They've got a gift. Scott's got a gift up there, her husband, Right? Because we can't hear her if he's not up there faithfully doing week after week. And we can say, oh, Kimberly, you're wonderful. Yes, you are. And Scott, so are you. Thank you so much. We could show favoritism over one kind of 
group of people. I get this all the time. I get, I get this in this church and every church I've ever been a part of. Did you, see that new, did you see that new family that came to visit today? Oh, you've got to go visit them. They've got three children. As opposed to maybe looking at another person and saying, oh man, that, that person is going to be a drain on the church. James says it should not be so. Because favoritism isn't always easy to see. Not like James says it is, but it is also more subtle and we've got to be on guard against it. James says, if you show no partiality, you do well. But if you show uh, favoritism, listen, you have every reason to be afraid. Now, here's the problem that we have with this passage. We say to ourselves, well, listen, even if I do show partiality, and, and, and you know, we always accuse our kids, our, our junior high kids, our high school kids, what do we say? Now, listen, those kids, you can't have cliques in those groups. You can't have cliques because you just kind of kill the youth group if you do that, right? We would tell them that. But aren't there some more subtle cliques that kind of go throughout most churches? And here's the thing. We say even if we do kind of have a clique that we have, it's no big deal. It's just, you know, a little bit of favoritism. We, we didn't kill anybody. We didn't commit adultery. James says not so fast. Back up just, just a little bit. So speak and so act. We don't get the strength of that in, in English as it is in Greek. He says, act this way. Speak this way. This is important. Judgment, he says, is certain and merciless for those that show favoritism. I, I, wanna, I just want to tell you something. I'm going to come back and defend it in the middle. Favoritism, you say it's no big deal. Favoritism will kill a church. Favoritism will cause a church to split. Favoritism will keep a church from growing. And it's not as clear as James says, you know, the rich and the poor. It's much more subtle. My, we can have ways of communicating it, and we've got to be on guard against it. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. How serious is this thing that we call partiality or favoritism. Listen to Hebrews 12. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Stop. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. What's James saying? See to it that no fall short of the grace. How much grace have God, uh, by, of God have you received? Do you deserve the love and the grace that Jesus has overwhelmingly anointed you with? Do you deserve that? I know what I deserve. I deserve the cross. I deserve an eternity of separation. And the writer of Hebrews says, now, that same grace that you have received, now you go and lavish it on some people? No, no, no. Lavish it on all people. No favoritism. Who are we to judge? 
who deserves grace and who doesn't. Show no partiality. Verse 7, do they not blaspheme the very, the fair name by which you have been called? Some commentators say of that verse, they say, listen, what, what James is talking about is the baptism. He, he's talking about that when you were dipped under those baptismal waters by the grace of God, those words were said over you, I baptize you, my brother, my sister. You can't get much closer than that, right? My brother and my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's if as you're dipped under those waters, the barriers between God and between you have been washed away. And the barriers between brothers and sisters are likewise washed away. Consider the Lord's Supper. We eat of one bread so that we might be one body united. Consider the blood of Christ poured out for you. The point is this. Jesus Christ died so that the barriers between us and our Heavenly Father would be dissipated, would wash away. And the barriers between you and I would go away. So how important is it that we don't show partiality? Christ died so that we might be united. Who are we to put barriers back up? Listen to the words of Galatians 3 and 26. For you are all sons of God through faith. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one. One. Say that word with me. One. We are one in Christ. And let's be clear. The favoritism, the cliques, the divisions can kill a church. When I went to my first church, I think I was ready. God had a different plan. And uh, I, 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 just in the most miraculous situation, I was called to this little country church. When I'd gotten there, they had just gone through a terrible split. They'd gone overnight from 120 down to 45. That's what I kind of walked into. And over the next three years, we, we built back up to 120 folks. It felt such an incredible blessing. We stood in that fellowship hall and said, Lord God, if you will just send children, we promise that you, we will take care of them and love them and bless them and draw them to you. And boy, did he answer. We had more kids than we literally knew what to do with. And they took on a little building program. They hadn't built anything. That church was far older than this one, going back to revolutionary war times. And they took on a building program and, and they went in debt free. And it seemed like a happy place, but about three years into it, all of those new people that had come along, now they were, now they were been members long enough that they could be deacons. And they could be on the finance committee. And a group of deacons came in to my little office in that little country church, and they said, Pastor, we've got a, a problem in Cal. We, we can't have these people, hear it? We can't have these people take on these positions. Because he said, he said, if we do that, they might just take over our church. Do you hear? Our church. Wh whose church? 
his church. They might take over our church. Whose church? You mean the somebodies as opposed to the nobodies? May it never be. Not here. May it never be communicated in quiet ways as people enter this church. Amen. Because that's not who we are. I don't know if it's ever been quite said so clearly, but let's just make that a decision. Let's just make that a choice right now. That's not who we're going to be. To uh, uh, About a week ago last Wednesday, the Willets aren't back yet. They're still recovering. I went to see uh, David Willett at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. And, you know, he had, a heart, he had heart surgery. I went up there, and it took me about a New York minute to get into UNC Chapel Hill and get lost. I mean, it just, you go into that hospital and it's just crazy. It's just, it's just crazy. And uh, it's, it's just a maze. And about 90 seconds from the, 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 the desk, the welcome desk, I was lost. And I was looking up at this sign and uh, deer in the headlights. It's just blank. And uh, just had no idea where I was supposed to go to find the Willits. This uh, fella came up to me and uh, he, uh, he tapped me on the shoulder He's all in blue scrubs and everything, and he says, he says, are you lost? And I said, oh, yes. He said, where are you trying to get to? And I said, uh, they told me that I was supposed to go to the VIC. I've never heard of that before. I don't know where that is. He goes, oh, blue scrubs and everything. He goes, I work there. I'll just take you over there right now. And I said, well, thank you. And so, and man, he's a fast walker. Whoosh, he's gone. And I'm like, okay, here we go. And, uh, and uh, so I don't know uh, who he is. I don't know if he's uh, the cleanup guy. I don't know if he's an orderly. I don't know if he's a nurse. What, what's going on? But I know he's, he's moving. And so he takes me into, uh, he's got a pass, gets me into the inner sanctum and, and then the surgical area. And he goes, up, who, who are you looking for? I said, Mr. David Willett. He said, uh, he said, all right. And he goes over to the nurse and he gets his paper and he's looking, he's talking to her and he comes back and he said, oh, listen, David's still in surgery. Probably the best thing for you to do is to go into the VIC visitor's waiting area. And I thought, Lord, I'm just going to get lost again. He goes, I'll take you there. Whoosh! Out, he, out the door he goes. So, and I'm thinking, who is this guy? Is he an orderly? Is he a nurse? And so, shy little wallflower that I am, I just said, hey, what do you do here in this hospital? He said, I'm a surgeon in the VIC. So I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty good. And so we're, we're, we're walking, and, and uh, we, we get to that, that waiting area. And, uh, and, and sure enough, he, he, I'm thinking he's going to say, oh, there it is. And he, and he, but he takes me inside. And he looks at me and he says, do you see your, do you see your people? And I, I said, yeah, there's the Willis right there. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Whoosh, and he's gone. So I'm sitting with the Willits. And uh, we sat there for quite a while and talked for a bit. And then it got kind of quiet. And I couldn't help but kind of go back and think about the good Samaritan surgeon. And I thought to myself, you know, that man must have had more important things to do than to guide me around the hospital. And I, and I bet if you looked at his name that he had a whole bunch of letters before and a whole bunch of letters after. 
that said that he was a somebody. And he'd probably taken decades to get to that place in his life. But he saw somebody that was lost and went out of his way to help him get found. And here's the kicker. It's not the first time I've been lost at UNC Chapel Hill. And it's not the first time that I've experienced that where someone came up and said, are you lost? Can I help you? And I believe that somebody at some point came along and said, I think that at UNC Chapel Hill, we're going to have a culture of caring. They made that decision that they were going to be interruptible, that they were going to help people not just the ones with the medical, but the ones that were lost. It was going to be a community of caring. And I just thought to myself, isn't that exactly what James is saying? Without regards to how many letters before or after, we're just going to care for people. That we can just make that decision right now, that that's who we are. Because divisions will kill a church. Divisions will kill a church, but unity will make it come alive. And so I'm, I'm driving to church this morning, and there's old Russ out there. There's Russ in the front, and he's waving to people. Got the big flag. Come on in. We're going to help you find your way. We're not going to let you go. We want to communicate from the parking lot to the, to the chapel to wherever you're going that you're welcome, that you're loved, that you're desired, and if you're lost, we want to help you get found. They decided to make that, that decision, and I think that should be our decision too. In fact, I think we're making that decision. That as, a, as our welcoming folks, our first impressions, man, they take somebody from the parking lot, and they, their charters, they're not going to let you go. Arr. They're not letting you go until they get you to the Sunday school class. And then the Sunday school teacher is going to say, come on in. We've been expecting you. We desire you. We want you to be part of the family. And by the way, we're having a fellowship this, uh, this week, and we want you to be a part. And not just that, but through a hundred different ways, we want to communicate. Why? Because we were nobodies, and now we're somebodies in Christ. We remember what it feels like to be a nobody. We don't want anybody to feel like that. Russ isn't out there because it's on a schedule. It's because he has a passion for Jesus Christ, and he wants to share it. And in a hundred different ways, not communicating that there's divisions, that there's some that are superior and some that are inferior, but we are one in the body of Christ. There's one woman that sits up in the balcony every Sunday. I love this woman. I asked her, why are you sitting up there? She said, you know what she said? She said, because I look out over the sanctuary, and if anybody's sitting alone, I know to go down. I can see everybody, and, and so I can, I can see if anyone's sitting alone, and if it's a guest or a new person, I, I go down there and I sit with them. What an attitude. She's like a guest vulture. She's just a, she's up there. Maybe a guest angel. <laughs> Shouldn't that be our attitude? Not because we kind of been trained, but because Jesus Christ loved us first. And so we're just, what else can we do but love others? And not just with words, with our hands, with our actions, with our attitude. Divisions, 
disunity, favoritism in a church will kill a church. But look at that picture. All ages, all backgrounds, men, women, children, different colors. Beautiful. Certainly this is God's will. Let's pray together. Good and gracious Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift to come into your house today. And we celebrate what you, what you have done in our lives, who you are. You have poured grace over us, absolutely flooding us with love and compassion. You have healed us and taken our broken ways and made something beautiful. Now, Holy Spirit of God, abide in us. Abide in your church, in this body. Let there be no divisions, no favoritism. But may this church be known as one that is open and welcoming and desiring all people. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.